We are reading this morning from our scriptures, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, who earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and have a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. 
This is the word of God. Should we perhaps pray? Let's pray together. Oh God, we, um, we always need your help, but when we read a passage like this, we especially need your help. Would you uh, speak to us, God? You tell us that your word is uh, living and active. Would you be with us? Would you speak clearly, help us to see Jesus? We pray in his name, amen. Well, I want to start this morning by reading a quote from Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is an uh, Episcopal priest, an uh, author, a scholar. She writes this. She says, in the church, this is the season of Advent. It is superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas, but in truth, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves towards the light, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. This Advent, we are using the book of Revelation as our guide as we look back to the first Advent of Christ, the incarnation, God taking on flesh at Christmas. Also, we um, look forward to his second advent, his return, when all things will finally be made right. And we've been saying that the book of, uh, of Revelation is really the perfect book for advent because Revelation is revealing something to us. And what it's revealing to us is what's really true, that, that if the curtain of human experience could be pulled back, we'd see behind the scenes and beneath the surface that Christ is ruling over all things despite present appearances. And, uh, you know, we just read what is perhaps the strangest chapter of the whole Bible. <laughs> and... Um, why? <laughs> well, I, I figure on the one hand, even in this kind of brief, uh, brisk journey through the book of Revelation in four or five sermons, I mean, I, I feel like I'd be selling you short if we didn't at least take a look at something like this, <laughs> right? But um, in truth, this, this passage is really the heart of the book of Revelation. There are, um, John receives seven visions throughout the book of Revelation, and this is the fourth of those seven visions. It's the midpoint of the book. Um, it's the emphasis in so many ways of the book of Revelation. And I know it's easy for us to read this chapter and think, 
This is actually why I avoid the book of Revelation. Uh, there's this weird imagery. There's a dragon. Um, what I don't really understand what's happening, but I know that it's weird, so I'm just going to kind of stay away from it. But the, the key, I think, to understanding this passage is, as Jesus said, to approach it with childlike faith. Because we might look at this passage and go, what in the world is going on? And yet at the same time, if one of our kids, if one of the students in our church was to pick up a comic book and read about a dragon who is opposing a woman, and she gives birth to a child, and uh, that student might think, you know, I'm not exactly sure who these characters are supposed to represent. But in broad outline, I get the plot, I get the narrative here. I can understand in broad outline that there's a world where darkness is a reality, where there's a, a dragon on the prowl and that he wants to hurt people. And that's basically what this passage is telling us. My hope this morning as we think about it for a few minutes is that it will all become clear for us. But I think the question that, that I want to pose to you that I think sort of teased this passage up for us is this. What does Christianity feel like? What does your faith feel like? Um, you, you may use different words. Um, what is the spiritual life? What does it feel like? Because I think that a lot of times we believe that our spiritual lives should feel like, what do they feel like? If there's an image, maybe, maybe the, the, the Christian life, we think it should feel like a uh, inner tube ride down a river and the sun is shining and it's a warm afternoon and the cooler is full and we're with friends and we're just sort of going with the flow. Or other times we might think that the spiritual life uh, feels like a performance review at work where we're doing our best, but we know, if we're honest, if somebody was to really take an inventory that probably haven't checked all of the boxes and we're being evaluated. We think our spiritual lives should feel authentic and affirming or maybe strenuous. And then we read a passage like this where there's a dragon who's knocking the stars out of heaven and that is, doesn't really fit into either of those boxes very well. But what this passage is revealing to us, and, and by the way, don't, don't miss the Advent theme here. There's a woman giving birth to the baby, to the son, who's being opposed by the powers of this world. The Christian life is a battle. This is what this is telling us. Advent begins in the dark. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I think that's important for us to at least one Sunday in Advent, pause and just acknowledge that reality, that Advent begins in the dark because if we don't understand the reality that the Christian life is a conflict, then our experience of the Christian life will be detached from the rest of our lives if we think of our spiritual existence as this sort of authentic affirmation of who we already are, then when we face real darkness in our world, we will think that Jesus has very little to do with it. And so during Advent, we talk a lot about hope, and why do, why do we need hope? We, we need hope because we live in a world that is very often dark. Just in the last 24 hours, I have um, received news that a friend and, and mentor of mine has entered into hospice in his fight with cancer. 
that a, another friend of mine, his 11-year-old son ran away from home yesterday, hasn't been seen in 24 hours. And I know that, that you are facing similar realities in your lives, you and your loved ones. We live in a world that is dark, but we have hope because God has broken into the darkness at Advent. Hope is not pining for the good old days, wishing for their return, nor is hope the same thing as our culture's obsession with some vague notion of progress, whatever that means. But as our choir sang last week, hope has a name, Emmanuel, God with us. Hope is living now in light of God's certain future. Advent begins in the dark. You know, uh, like many of you, our house has um, now Christmas lights. I'm not entirely sure how they got there. Um, <laughs> I don't know if my wife or kids put them up. Uh, maybe they were there when we moved in. Some <laughs> but uh, sometime, I didn't put them up, but about three weeks ago, somebody plugged them in and turned them on, and I don't think we've unplugged them in three weeks. And you know, when I leave home in the morning, it's usually light out and I leave and I don't really think much about the Christmas lights and sometimes when I come home, it's still light out and uh, I don't really think much about the Christmas lights, but sometimes we'll have dinner and then we'll go out again and we come out the front door and go, oh my gosh, the Christmas lights are on. And why do we notice them? Because it's dark, right? The light shines brightest in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The Christian life is not going to make sense if we think that it should feel like a trip down the river. It's going to be totally disconnected from our actual lives because we live in a world that very often is full of darkness. Advent is about the God who breaks into the darkness to shine the light. It's about the God who sustains his people in the midst of the struggle. So let's look at this passage and let's see how it shines the light into the reality of our world. And the first thing that we need to do if we're going to understand this passage is we just need to, if you're going to understand the, the story, you've got to understand the characters in the story. And so who are the characters in this story? There are three characters mentioned in this passage. There's a woman, and she gives birth to a child, and then there's a dragon who wants to devour the child and harass the woman. I mean, this is about as classic, vintage, apocalyptic revelation uh, as you can imagine, right? Who are these characters? Well, <clears throat> the child says this about the child in verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It's a reference to uh, the promised Messiah. The child in this passage is Jesus. Um, that, that metaphor of the, the one who would rule with an iron rod is a reference to Psalm 2 where the psalmist uh, envisions the day when the Messiah would come and he would rule and he would break the oppression of those who are opposed to God's people um, is Jesus, who then is the woman. Um, so you'd think that if Jesus is the, the male child, that the woman who gives birth to the male child is, is Mary, Jesus' mother. But um, if you read the first verse, you get a slightly different uh, picture here. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, 
with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, This is a reference back to, in Genesis 37, uh, Joseph, who you might remember had an amazing Technicolor dream coat, he, he has a dream and he, he envisions uh, his, his brothers bowing down to him. It's a reference back to that dream. And so what this passage is telling us is it's giving us a picture of the people of God. I remember Joseph's brothers were the, um, uh, patriarch isn't the right term, but kind of the, the, the progenitor of each of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's a picture of the, the people of God, Old Testament Israel, the New Testament church. Um, it's a picture of all believers everywhere. The woman is a picture of God's people. And then there's the dragon. And um, the dragon... This is the one place in the whole of Revelation where John explains the imagery. He says this in verse 9. And the dragon, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. There's a real devil. Um, there is one who is the personification of, of evil, uh, we're not told much about him, but the Bible is clear that, that the, the devil, Satan, isn't just a, um, you know, a mythical creature, that uh, he isn't just a uh, concept, but there is a, there's a real devil. He is a real being. He is not God's equal. He is a created being. He is most likely an angel who rebelled against God, who is at war against God, and he is attempting to undermine all that God does. And we are, we are not left to wonder who this uh, image represents because we're told this explicitly in verse 9. He is the, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Notice that it says that his, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth in verse 4. Here it symbolizes the catastrophic and cosmic effect of the fall of, uh, into sin of all humanity because of the sin of Adam and Eve, which we talked about um, this fall as we looked at the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And so it's because of this that he appears as a serpent in Genesis 3 to tempt Adam and Eve to sin, causing sin to enter, the human race to enter into sin. It's because of his attempts to undermine God's good plans that we see here that he tries to devour the baby, the, the Messiah, as soon as he is born. And we see the fruits of this. We know in the story of the, the birth of Christ at Christmas that when the wise men came from the east, they followed the star, they came to worship the one who was born uh, as the Messiah, that, that Herod, who was sort of a pretender king, uh, heard that there was a king that had been born, and Herod, in his paranoia, tries to eliminate him. And so Herod um, tells the wise men, let me know where you see this king when you find him so that I can worship him too. Of course, he's not going to worship him. He's going to kill him. And the wise men are warned, and they go back home another way. And so what does Herod do? Well, he kills all of the babies, all of the male babies, the slaughter of the innocents. Satan is trying to get rid of the one who is going to save us from our sin and restore us to God. 
But we see that when Jesus appears on the earth and he is raised from the dead and he ascends into heaven, he now sits on the throne of the universe. What this passage is telling us is that the fate of the devil is sealed. He is once and for all banished from heaven. And then we see, it says in verse 13, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Though he has lost the war against God and his ultimate fate is sealed in his rage, he still goes after God's people. And so that, in some ways, that's, those are the characters. That's the, that's the background sort of of this story. What, the, what this passage is showing us is that there's a war going on. There's a conflict in which we are engaged. But the second thing that I want us to notice in this passage is the, the weapons of this conflict. We saw this already, but the passage tells us, by the way, <laughs> I feel like I should just say this, it's cold in here this morning. <laughs> if you're like, is he nervous about this weird passage? I'm just cold. <laughs> Um, the passage tells us that in his life and his death, his resurrection, and now in his ascension into heaven, Jesus has won the war. Verse 5 says that the, the child or the Messiah was caught up to God and to his throne, which is an allusion to the ascension of Christ. He, he ascends back into heaven where he rules and reigns over all things, and this means that the battle is effectively over. It is done. Um, we probably need to think of a better analogy for this, but for a couple generations now, um, pastors, preachers have talked about the difference between uh, D-Day, which assured the victory of the allies over the, uh, the, the Nazis in World War II. Uh, as soon as D-Day was accomplished, victory was all but assured, and yet there was still ongoing fighting until, until victory had been fully won. The battle is done. The story is over. The end is in sight, and yet we still live in a period where the full effects of Jesus uh, victory and his reign and his rule have yet to be fully applied to the ends of the earth. And so, that, so he cannot touch God. And so what the, what the devil does is he goes after God's people. The devil is fighting against God's people. He is fighting against Christians. Now, I think we have to be really clear about what that means. Because this is really important <laughs> It's really important that we understand that there is a reality, that there is a a devil who opposes God's people, and yet I think it is also really easy for us to misunderstand uh, what that means. Um, This last week or two, I've read this book by um, a guy named Andrew Wilson, who's an English pastor and author, called uh, Remaking the World. It's a fantastic book book of history and the sort of influence um, of Christianity in the Western world over the last 250 years and um, that the place that the church now finds itself, if you're looking for any last minute Christmas gifts, go out and buy it. I bought it for somebody yesterday. (laughs) He says this. He says, if you want 
to prevent 21st century Christians from preaching the gospel, pursuing social reform, and holding fast to Orthodox faith, then history is your friend. Just cast 18th century missionaries as rapacious villains, 19th century reformers as patrician moralists, and the defense of biblical authority in the 20th century as a thinly guised power play, and browbeaten believers will flee the public square like rabbits in the field when the fox arrives. Conversely, if you want to ensure that the divisions and injustices of the 18th century church continue into the present, then give people a triumphalistic historical narrative of evangelistic breakthrough, social transformation, and spiritual revival while carefully omitting the egregious racial, sexual, and political failures of their heroes. You see what he's saying We live in a world where we are prone to have way too neat a narrative of the influence of the Christian church in our history and culture. Either we adopt this posture of victimhood where uh, we emphasize all that has been great about the church and its history, and we ignore the details that challenge that narrative, and we act like we are the victims of some sort of conspiracy, or we emphasize the church's misdeeds as if they are the exclusive narrative of her legacy. We rush to a culture war posture when we hear somebody talk about the reality that the church in this world will face opposition. We run to a culture war narrative that is too simplistic. And here's the real problem. We hear this passage talk about the church being opposed by the devil. We rush to a either or narrative and in doing that we miss the point completely. We miss the warning for us in this passage. Can I just put it bluntly? What this passage is telling us is this. The devil is real and he hates you. The devil is real and he hates you. And he is a lot smarter than you. And we can dismiss him as some sort of like weird fairy tale or we can point fingers at whoever we think the problem really is in our world and he doesn't need to get the credit and we can be oblivious to the havoc that he is wreaking. Uh, How does he behave? There are two words in this passage that are used to describe the behavior of the devil. The first is that he is the accuser. He accuses God's people. The name Satan literally means the accuser. In verse 10, it says that um, Satan accuses God's people all day and all night before God. That's really important. Um, I don't know, you know, if you think about the devil. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? How, how would the devil come and tempt you? Uh, he doesn't roll up like on a Harley with tattoos and like wild hair and fire in his eyes and try to give out like tainted candy to children or something like that. (laughs) He accuses us. He accuses us by telling us we are not worthy of the love of God. He says to you things like, oh, so you're gonna go to church today, are you? That's cute, because you and I both know how you yelled at your spouse yesterday. 
right? Or Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the accuser says, no, he won't. He will wear you out. Don't even try it. Or Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the accuser says, if you do that, no one will take you seriously. Your career will pass you by. Or, you know, Jesus says, the way to find your life is to lose it for my sake. The accuser says, like, why not start that next week? He's an accuser. The second weapon in his arsenal is deception. He deceives. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Interesting thing about deception. Deception is not outright untruth. Deception is taking a kernel of the truth and twisting it into a lie. So it sounds plausible. He plays games with the truth. Um, what does this look like for us? Well, if you're a Christian, maybe this looks like thinking that goes like this. You know, being a Christian is so important. It's so important. Oh, you're going to talk to your coworker about your, you might, okay, so you're planning, you're going to go into work, and when somebody says something to you about how's your weekend, you're going to say, oh, I went to church this Sunday because I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're going to say that to your coworker. You know, that's really important. Are you sure you're actually ready for that? Are you prepared to answer the questions that will come as a result? You know what? You're going to have another chance next week. You better do some more research. Make sure you know all the answers. Make sure it's the right timing. You'd better be totally prepared before you do what God is calling you to do. And if you string along enough of those, then you never get started. Or, you know, you're going to move towards your neighbors in hospitality. Well, are you sure this is the right, is this the best time of year to do that? You know, you're really busy, they're really busy, maybe just put it off for a little bit longer. Or, uh, funny, Cal kind of said this a few minutes ago, do you really think you can make any difference? Are you going to give your money to God's cause? You're going to serve? Uh, does your presence really matter at all? Isn't it just a drop in the ocean? It's deception. If you're not a Christian, maybe it goes something like this. You know, being a Christian is really important. You better make sure you understand everything before you give yourself to Christ. Instead of saying, the God of the universe is calling you to follow him. Of course you don't understand everything about what that means. He does not need the credit. We have to understand the battle that we are in. There's a devil and he hates you. Here's the good news. The passage tells us about protection. 
When Satan comes at you, the question that we have to think about is this. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to the accusation? How are you going to respond to the deception? How are you going to protect yourself when he accuses you, not with lies, but with the truth about yourself? When he spins the truth ever so slightly, are you going to show the love of Christ to others when you haven't read your Bible in weeks? Good luck with that. You're probably not the best person to do that, are you? How are you going to protect yourself? You're going to say, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to grit it out. What are you going to do with Satan's accusation? Can I just read two verses to you again? Verses 10 and 11, listen to this. John says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There are two really important things in that passage. First, what this is saying is this, the battle is already over. The devil has already been defeated by the blood of the lamb and the greatest paradox of history, the one who comes to rule with an iron rod vanquishes the forces of sin and death, not by going to battle against them directly in conflict with them, but by pulling them onto himself and taking them to the grave on the cross. And here's the incredible thing. The devil never even saw it coming. Can you imagine the Messiah is born to the woman and Herod in his jealousy slaughters the innocent babies trying to get to him and Satan is cheering, but Jesus escapes. And then you fast forward to the end of his ministry and the crowds are acclaiming him and the devil is going, this is awful, this is not, and then he goes to the cross. And Satan's thinking, yes, finally, this is it, this is the end, I'm going to win. And Satan thinks he's about to win, he never even sees it coming, the tables are turned. Jesus takes the lies, the accusation, the guilt of our sin and our shame upon himself and he takes them to the grave. And then three days later, he is raised from the dead and he ascends into heaven where he rules over all things even now. The devil has been defeated. Jesus says, it's kind of a weird thing he says in Luke chapter 10, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? It's what this passage is talking about. He has been defeated. He has been cast down. <clears throat> he still is flailing around on the earth, but his end is sure. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He may still be thrashing around and he may still do damage, but the battle is won. That's what Revelation is making clear. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second though, when he accuses you, when he deceives you, your protection will not come from your willpower. It cannot be, I've got this. It has to be, 
Jesus has already paid for this. Jesus has already paid for this. Verse 11, the people of God have conquered by the devil, by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony. What is a testimony? I mean, think about, you think about that uh, in, a, in the context of the Bible, and we're like, I don't know what that means. Well, how do we use the word testimony or witness typically? We think about that in terms of the court, in a court, right? Where someone is called to simply explain what they have seen, explain what they have witnessed. It's a person or hopefully many people saying, I saw this with my own eyes. This is what happened. This is what's true. In Revelation, John is saying, this is my testimony. I lived with Jesus for three years. I saw him die. I saw him alive again. I saw him ascend into heaven. And then I saw a vision of him, and I wrote it down for you to read. This is true. This is the testimony. It's the truth. And if we're going to prevent ourselves from being deceived, we're going to have to immerse ourselves in the truth. And this is why worship and witness go together. That's why worship is central to who we are as God's people and why regularly gathering for worship is central to our witness in the world. The way that we engage in this battle is by bearing witness to the lamb who has conquered by his blood. Remember several years ago, I think it was 2000, the summer of 2000, when the the Summer Olympic Games were in Sydney, Australia. And... Because of the time difference um, in the U.S., all like prime time programming of the Olympics was um, tape delayed, right? It, w- it was showing video of things that had happened hours before on the other side of the world. And uh, I remember that summer we were watching, I think it was the U.S. women's um, soccer team playing, you know, in a, I don't remember who they were playing, but watch this 90-minute women's soccer game. And we sit there kind of on the edge of our seats the whole time, and, and we're just kind of riding the highs and lows of the game. And my dad, meanwhile, is, is perfectly content. And every time you know, something doesn't go the way we're hoping, he says, don't worry, they got it. It's going to be OK. You see where this is going, right? <laughs> he listened to the game on the radio at work, you know? <laughs> He already knew how the story was going to end. You know, you already know how the story is going to end. The battle is ongoing, but you know how it will come to an end. Therefore, you can have confidence in the chaos of the present because Christ has come. He rules and reigns over all things. He has broken into the darkness to shine the light of his truth. And that's why we sing. That's why we sing all year long, but especially at Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the reality that you fight the battle on our behalf. Jesus, some of us are, um, some of us struggle to be honest about 
the reality of the world that we live in because we feel like if we acknowledge the, the reality of the darkness, it would overwhelm us. And some of us are far too confident in our ability to fight back against it on our own. And to either, to those of us in either of those postures, or, or probably more realistically, those of us who flip back and forth between the two, uh, the message of Advent, the message of this passage is so needed because it allows us to be honest about the world that we live in. And it shows us that we are not going to be the solution, but because you have overcome and you have won. And that we can join you and we can work. We can join you in your mission. We can work with purpose. We can follow you as you... um, do your work liberating the captives, preaching good news to the poor. And on and on, Jesus, because the end is sure. Help us to believe that that is true. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.